We've talked about Moore's Law coming to an end in several episodes. And what we mean by that is that we can't rely on just sheer computing power doubling to be able to meet our demand. So given that processing power is not something we can rely on doubling indefinitely, we have to be more careful in our use of CPU, more efficient in the way that we use it, what we're asking it to compute. And we have to find some interesting ways to do things. In this episode, we're gonna dive a little deep into what does a database actually do? What is the core of the data system? And how can we use some techniques to be able to free up some of the CPU's load by doing maybe some algorithmic trickery? I'm your host, Angelo Castrulis, and this is Counting Sand. Okay, I am so excited to have my friend and colleague, Mano Sathanisoulis, back again, professor of Boston University and data systems researcher. And this time we're going to talk about something a little bit different in the way that we access data and represent data, and especially thinking about it in terms of how Moore's law compute is changing and coming to an end. We have to find other and interesting ways to improve performance. Before I think we get into this, it might be nice just to have a quick little introduction of the concepts we're going to talk about for the audience. The two big things I think that a lot of people might not know about data systems is there are two main schools of thought in terms of how you store data, how you can arrange it. One way, if you think about data as a row, in other words, like a transaction, all the atomic elements of one transaction can be thought of as a row. If you store them together, kind of sequentially, we call that a row store. But if you think about it differently and you store, say, each columns of data together, we call that a column store. And so those two, the vertical, if you think about the columns and the horizontal as the rows, they have different characteristics. So if you're going to fetch maybe the entire row, a row store is efficient. If you're going to scan many of these, say you want to find transactions within a certain date, you can scan the column and it's going to be very efficient there. And the two lend themselves to two kinds of workloads. So I'm just defining a terminology here. An analytic workload where you're trying to kind of find this data in a big set lends itself to the columnar way of storing. And columnar systems are like Apache Druid and SAP HANA and things like that. And then if you're going to do transactional workloads, a particular transaction at a time, that's a row store. We're going to talk about some key technologies, and you may or may not be familiar with them. An SSD is a solid-state drive, meaning it's like a hard drive, except it doesn't have the spinning platter of disks. It's got chips on it that are like memory chips, but the data doesn't go away when it loses power. An FPGA is a field programmable gate array. Instead of on a CPU, we arrange the transistors a certain way. We call that the die, and then it stays that way because you manufacture it. You can't change a CPU. It does what its function is. FPGAs, on the other hand, can be programmable so that you can deploy this little block, this little chip, wherever you want, and then you can put code on it to change it. Some of them you can change 10,000 times, and then that's it. Then the device is useless. And we're going to talk about main memory, and we're going to talk about cache. Main memory is the RAM inside of a computer. It's volatile, meaning when you turn the computer off, the RAM races. And then when it starts back up again, it has to reconstruct it, rebuild it, and start again. Whereas a disk stays. Cache is a kind of memory that's usually very close to the CPU. And so the amount of time needed, the access time is like nanoseconds. It takes 
very little time to access that memory by the CPU. And if you remember in season one, we kind of talked about all of this as an analogy of cache is like finding something on your desk. Main memory is maybe like finding something in your neighborhood or in your city. And then disk is like going to Pluto. It's that kind of orders of magnitude in terms of latency when you're looking for things. So the more you can take advantage of cache, the better. The problem is it can't be infinitely large. It has to fit near the chip. So it has to be very small. So now you have this trade-off. How big do you make it? The bigger you make it, the slower it's going to get. So you're trying to find the right balance. So Manos, tell me a little bit about you know, some more characteristics about a row versus a column that got your attention in research and why it is important for us to choose the right format. So first of all, I'm very happy to be here again. Thanks for inviting me. I, I, I dive right into it because I think this is a very interesting topic. So this question has been on the forefront of data management research at least for the last 10 or 12 years. And people have been doing research on column versus rows even from the 80s. However, it's still relevant because many of the workloads that we're executing have this dual nature. And now it's becoming more and more that this dual nature exists at the same time, all of the time, right? So on the one hand, we're collecting lots of data, measurements, information about sales, information about monitoring activity, whatever data we are collecting, we are collecting lots of them at any point of time. And the natural way of collecting data items is just putting together all the conceptual pieces of this data item. And that's what the row is, essentially. So a row can be, for example, I want to store all the metadata that I captured from a group of sensors at this specific uh, timestamp, or it could be all the metadata of monetary transaction that you made online. I want to store all this metadata, but then again, every now and then, I might want to analyze my overall data collection to figure out some trends, right? So maybe I, I want to make sure that I find, for example, how does the temperature change across seasons from a specific sensor, or how my sales, how do they change as I am moving into different products or to different locations, so on. So the, the first one is what you were calling transactional, and the second one is what you were calling analytical, and, and they typically favor different ways of storing the data, as you call them, row stores and column stores accordingly. But also this means that there's a different architecture of the system. So to make a long story short, when we are collecting these measurements one at a time, essentially the easy thing to do is to simply append the whole measurement every time we get one of those, right? If we want to say, find the average temperature of a specific sensor, we're interested only in this temperature information and we don't want to be reading at the same time more data when we're answering this query. And why one would ask why we would need to read more data? Well, when we're reading data in any software system, really, we're actually reading a block of data. This block of data can be a disk page. If we're reading from the disk, it can be a memory page. If we're reading from memory, it can be a cache line. If we're reading from the cache. However, we have to read the entire block, even if we only need four bytes from this block. So if we collocate the useful data, then everything that we read is going to be useful. If we do not do that, we're going to be reading the whole block only to be reading only a subset of that. And that's essentially what is the benefit of column stores. If I know that I'm going to access only single column for my query, or maybe two columns, right? I want to be able to access these two columns out of my, let's say, 20 columns that my table has, right? So I can access my first column and then I efficiently answer my query, or maybe I efficiently find uh, the rows that I'm interested in. And then using these values, I'm accessing the second column to calculate some statistics, right? Mm -hmm. So that's fine. Now, what's the problem? What's the drawback of column stores? The drawback is that we have to break the data 
down into different columns when we're inserting these new data items. So if we want at the same time to be able to insert new data in our system and having them readily available for efficient columnar access that read only the useful data for all these analytical queries, this is not an easy task. So there have been a lot of research over the last several years. Essentially, you can break this down into a few schools of thought, but you either say, I'm going to start from a row store and I'm going to have a column store accelerator, which is like an index in memory, or I'm going to have a pure rows, a pure column store, and then I have to pay the cost of ingestion, and then we optimize that. For example, we optimize by having a so-called write store where it gets all the new data, which is in row store format. And then every now and then we get a batch of this data to be more efficient, right? We batch this data, we break them down into columns and we load them into the main system that has essentially the efficiently laid out data in columns, right? And then as far as maybe 20 years ago, there is this approach called fractured mirrors, which was proposing to say, have two copies of the data. One is a a roster copy, one is a column store copy, maintain both of them and essentially have the transactional data coming in into the row store and then have a constant flow into the column store under the hood. And then you could actually have an almost very fresh version of your data efficiently laid out at any point of time. But then you had to store physically two copies of data and you had to have two systems to maintain. Now, what's the problem with having two copies of the data? Well, obviously you have to spend the time and the money to store this data, which is essentially duplicating your size. And now that we are moving more and more in the cloud, essentially everything directly translates to renting more disks or renting more storage. Yeah. And on the other hand, you have code complexity. You need to maintain two systems. And you know you have to resolve all sorts of problems that any of the two might face. One of the things that you mentioned was the problem with column stores. They're fantastically good at searching like predicates, the where part of a query, especially if you're going to have analytic capability. What the problem is, you know, you mentioned this, was that say that the data is sorted, I can quickly find what I want and start scanning. But what if I have to insert a new row in the middle of this? I have to find where it belongs. I have to move everything out of the way. I have to create a place for it and put that in. But not just there, in every row, in every column of that row, right. which is extremely expensive. So both of these, row stores as well, have their own problem, right? If I'm going to scan, like you said, I'm going to throw away most of the row because I can only scan certain amount in a chunk. And then if I'm only looking at one small piece and throwing it away, I'm spending all the time of moving all that into memory just to ignore it. And so now the system designer is faced with a problem. There's no perfect solution here. I have to make a decision. Do I go with one kind of workload or another workload? And I like what you were talking about. That's the natural way that we start thinking of things. We'll say, well, do we want to create a system, maybe we'll store both ways and we'll just try to decide during the workload process. But that creates a bunch of problems, kind of like what you were just saying. You have two systems now to maintain. What other problems do you see with this idea of, because people might say storage is cheap. Not when we're talking about petabytes, it's not. You're, you're right. And essentially, don't get me wrong, there's a wealth of wonderful solutions that are actually very good. And they're trying to bridge the gap between the two in various ways. It's actually too many to list all of them, but essentially... You might say, I'm going to start from one extreme, either a row store or a column store, and then I'm going to create fragments of data that are exactly in the layout that I want them to be. So this is great. And then essentially, if you have similar queries, they're going to have readily available the next piece of data that they're really interested in. 
or maybe you say I'm going to start from a row store, but I'm going to maintain an in-memory accelerator that has everything as a column, which I don't care for durability. So if my system goes down, I will simply reload it. I don't need to maintain this and store this durably, but my queries are very fast when I'm operating normally, right? And then, of course, you have a lot of effort happening in the column store database systems or column store even cloud-based data management offerings that essentially they are storing pure column stores on the cloud, but they do have this ingestion mechanism of ingesting rows, storing them locally, buffering them locally, and splitting them in as a batch along the way. Some of the problems that you might face, for example, is that, okay, if you have fragments of data to the layout that you want them to be, now you have to maintain these fragments of data as well. So you have to maintain probably your traditional buffer pool, which is for your transactional workload, but then you also have to maintain another memory space that you have all these fragments or these columns or groups of columns that might be tailored to the specific queries you are receiving. And then you have to search through them and find which one is the one that you're looking for. Again, all of this is not Mm -hmm. to say that this is not possible or this is not working. It's actually working. What we saw as an opportunity is to try and simplify the architecture of the systems. That's what Mm -hmm. we wanted to do. Essentially, even during my postdoc years at Harvard, I was thinking of this magic memory, this magic device that could actually give you rows or it could give you columns from the hardware, from the device itself, right? So you don't need to physically decide, I'm going to store them as rows, I'm going to store them as columns. You're going to store them in one way and always get whatever you want. And I was thinking, okay, that's too good to be true. But still, if we had that, that would be amazing because then we can essentially make every query ask exactly the columns that it wants. If a query needs to access three columns, column 1, 7, and 11, for example, of the data of the table, it can simply fetch these three columns and nothing else through the memory hierarchy, right? Mm -hmm. If we have this hardware, then we can actually build simple data systems because the data system does not need to worry about what is the layout. It will always have exactly the layout it needs. Mm -hmm. So at the time, I was thinking that this might be something interesting to consider in the context of smart SSDs, smart solid-state disks, Because the last maybe 10 years now, seven years, there have been a lot of SSD devices that are equipped with logic within the device. So this can be in a small FPGA. Essentially, you can implement whatever you want in this small FPGA. It turns out that I was discussing this idea with a colleague, PU, Renato, Renato Mancuso, who was working on real-time systems, and he has a lot of expertise in building new hardware with FPGA. And he was also working on an idea to use an FPGA, which is located between main memory and CPU, to actually make the CPU believe that a specific memory address is available or is not available. Starting from this idea, we develop a new idea. So what if I have my data in memory as a row store, right? And then mm-hmm. I create a variable, which is another variable, not the base variable of your essentially two-dimensional array, which is your relational data. I create another variable, which is faked. So it does not exist. It does not point to any real memory address, right? But the moment someone tries to access anything in this variable, it uses this technology that Renato was already developing to actually go through the FPGA and read and morph some specific subset of the data. So we actually call this ephemeral variable from the Greek word ephemeral, uh, which means something that can be forgotten easily in the near future. What this ephemeral variable is doing is that it is configured to read specific subset of the overall array, of the overall table. And the moment that CPU, like a C-line code, is trying to access, you know, 
let's call a femoral variable E, right? E of location five, this is going through the FPGA to fetch the specific parts of the row that we're interested in. And by specific parts, I mean the following. When we create a femoral variable, we say, this is an ephemeral variable pointing to a meta version of the relational table only containing, for example, three columns, column one, seven, and 11. So the moment I'm accessing E of five, I'm going to be fetching a row, a mini row of three columns, column one, seven, and 11, and I'm going to propagate this through the memory hierarchy as if it existed in main memory, even though it never existed in reality in main mm -hmm. memory. So the FPGA sits in between the main memory controller and the CPU. It directs the main memory controller to fetch the corresponding data. It cleans them up and it forwards them to the CAS hierarchy, really, before it reaches the CPU. This approach, one might think this has to be terribly inefficient because you have an actual FPGA doing actual reading and yeah. some version of selecting data on the fly in between the critical path. It turns out that by doing very diligent optimization of the way we develop the FPGA hardware, this can happen really, really efficiently, essentially mm -hmm. showing zero penalty to the memory access that the CPU would see if it was accessing directly the corresponding data. In fact, it's not entirely zero, so there is a small penalty if our ephemeral variable is reading only one, two, or three columns, but the moment it's reading three or more columns in our specific platform, we're better than the column store per se. Not, not better than the row store, which was the easy part. We are better than the column store wow. design. That's amazing. So I want to make sure that we understand the key concept here that the FPGA rearranges the data and injects it directly into cache. So mm -hmm. you don't pay the penalty of moving it through the hierarchy of memory. It's kind of already in the lower hierarchy. And so to the CPU and I guess also to the algorithms, that run is transparent, they think it's a row, even though it's not really a row stored on disk. Is that right? So on main memory and disk, the data is written as rows. And then mm -hmm. what we're doing is that we can give to the algorithms and to the CPU either one column or any group of columns that we're interested in. So a different subset of the data, as mm -hmm. if this was the way we stored the data on the disk. In order to make a parallel, I mentioned before that many systems actually create fragments of the data in memory, which is the optimal layout, right? Mm -hmm. So essentially, we are creating these fragments of the data on the fly without ever creating them in memory. The CPU can consume them, and they never existed. Why this is interesting? Because we still maintain our base storage, which is a row store, and can get all the new rows added at the end without any sort of penalty of you know chopping down the row into multiple columns without any of those more expensive operations and without needing any specific code that would do a write to read transition later on. We do this on the fly using this FPGA. Now, of course, I want to say a few disclaimers. This is a prototype. It does work for hand-coded queries. So we have a synthetic benchmark, but also some of the TPCH queries that we have started running. We are using this technology to also answer multi-table queries, or not only single-table queries, but we don't implement in the hardware anything other than creating the optimal layout. But by having this protection operator implemented in hardware, we call it near data transformation, we can essentially allow our systems to always have access to the optimal query layout without having to maintain multiple copies of the data, without having to have a software process of transforming 
row-oriented data to groups of columns or columns. The thing that makes that really interesting is that if we were to say, well, why not just duplicate the data? You mentioned it. We've got all these other auxiliary structures that that makes it very hard to maintain properties like ACID because I have a lot of things I have to keep in sync. I have to update whenever you do it right, which is what makes a lot of the big data systems like Cassandra and Dynamo so attractive because they take very, very high writes because of the co-location, the way that they carefully spread the data, these LSM trees, the way they carefully package them together so we can scan while at the same time buffering. If we didn't have to do any of that, this kind of gives you the best of both worlds because we could create a very smart system. I remember the H2O paper that I think Stratos and some others wrote. That paper is very interesting because it presents the idea of, well, what if we could dynamically start to understand what I'm being asked and then on idle time, I rearrange the data to kind of fit. So over time, the data will constantly be rearranged, but I still pay the penalty. This is saying... Well, what if I didn't have to rearrange it at all? What if I just made you think it was in the format that you wanted? That's exactly what it is. And H2O is actually very interesting that you mention it. It's essentially one paper that says, one approach that says, let's try to create these optimal layouts and then have a cache of these optimal layouts and use them as much as possible. And maybe do that also when I'm idle under the hood. And then if we have that, then we can do code generation and we need to change the rest of the system when we are answering the queries which is fantastic. And, and what we want to say now is that let's assume that all this optimal layout business is for free. And then you still need to change the rest of the system. So actually, this is our next phase. If we have a hardware that can actually offer the optimal layout at any point of time, how should we change the rest of the database system? Specifically, how should we change query optimization? This is the key question there. Now, mm -hmm. physical design, I think it will be simplified because you wouldn't need to think so much for physical design anymore because your smart hardware is going to give you any physical fragment of the data you want. But optimization now is becoming more interesting because you might have more options available to you, right? And in optimization, what we're trying to do typically is to see what are the options that I have and then to make sure that we find the fastest one to answer our query. So we are actually going to turn the question around not let's use the fastest I have, but let's make sure that I run the fastest that I could ever possibly get. Now, you also mentioned ACID. So clearly, the ACID properties are very important for any database system. You might have questions here as well, right? So one can say, okay, so you are creating on the fly a fragment of the data that exists only in the CPU and in the cache memories at the time that the CPU is consuming it. So how do we know that this is the actual correct data that we should be reading if at the same time I'm actually also writing on the base data of the table, right? So we cannot do this with classical locks and a simple classical approach. So we are using essentially snapshot isolation through one format of multi-version concurrence control. So every row has timestamps, beginning and end of validity. That's the two timestamps. And every query has also a timestamp. And if the timestamp is in between the valid timestamps of row, then this row has to be part of the query. It cannot be part of the query. So this is what we're using. The beauty of that is that our hardware that is doing projection is also manipulating this metadata as two extra columns. So they can actually be part of the same hardware. And we are also exploring moving at least some part of selection physically within the FPGA as well. So imagine that 
Not only you mm. can get the optimal layout, but you can also offload your selection in the FPGA. Now, again, this is not a new idea. Offloading selections to FPGA has been happening for many years. There's a lot of different efforts across the globe. We are working on that. Notably, there is a group from ETH that has done a lot of effort in this realm. Essentially, it will complement our current hardware and it will push even less data through the memory hierarchy towards the CPU, making it even more appealing moving forward. That's interesting. So for our listeners, you mentioned projection is where you're implementing. Projection is the part of the query that returns the columns you want. That's the select part of SQL. I was going to ask, and you answered it already, but can you do the selection? That's the predicate part, the where part of the query, where you're trying to reduce the rows if essentially selecting it. Some data systems call that filtering, but in data system speak, that's what we mean when we say selection. Now you can use column store algorithms on row stores, and they would think it's a column store yes. if you could implement the selection. Yeah. So you can do this already even without the selection, right? Because essentially you can say, you know what, I'm going to ask for column number one from my table, and then I can use this column to do my column at a time style processing. And then I'll use another similar variable and I request column number three. So you can actually do this with our hardware. Essentially, our hardware allows you to work with many rows and groups of columns and with entire columns. Any of the three is possible. So you can do column at a time, you can do row at a time, you can do mini row at a time, or of course you can do block or vector at a time if you implement this on top of our hardware. This is not done yet from our prototype, but it can definitely be done in the future. Thinking about where data systems have gone, we have OLTP, which is the transaction processing, and we have the OLAP, which is the analytics. And there's this in-between thing that we're talking about, all this, all the hybrid approaches. There has been, I remember even talking about this when I was at Harvard all those years ago, that there could be a time when all of this coalesces. There won't be SQL and no SQL. There will be more and more things in common. The Venn diagram will cross over more and more. And you are indeed seeing NoSQL databases that have ACID properties. And so now all of a sudden, you know, we can start combining these things. And I think this kind of technology, this idea of saying, let's use hardware technology to make the penalty we pay with memory low so that we can maximize what we're using. You know, again, now that Moore's Law is coming to an end, we don't need more and more CPU. The bottleneck is memory movement. Well, what if we can eliminate that a bit? Now, in the beginning, of course, we didn't start doing specialized hardware, but we started building the so-called multi-core processors that everybody now has, even in their phones today. Even the mm-hmm. phones have like eight cores. Why, why a phone has eight cores? Not because necessarily we always prefer to write a program that uses multiple threads, right? This actually is more difficult than writing a single monolithic program. However, the single monolithic program will not get faster anymore with a better CPU. It used to be getting faster with faster CPUs. It doesn't anymore. So now we have more CPUs or more cores, to say it better, and we have this parallelism. And essentially, over the last maybe 15, 17 years now, almost any software system is being rewritten or tailored for increasing parallelism. The other part of the end of Moore's law is that now we are not getting faster CPUs anymore. So if I build a specialized hardware that actually accelerates something, That's probably very interesting because I'm not going to get the benefits in any other way unless I can parallelize them. And by the way, you need to upgrade your servers every few years or every few months. However, the cloud essentially does it for you and they do it because they have thousands or millions of customers at the same time. 
so they can afford to do that. And then you can always say, you know what, now if you have this, I want to take advantage mm-hmm. of your FPGA. I can simply go and turn it on on the cloud. And that's why cloud offerings under the hood have started using more and more hardware acceleration techniques. Mm-hmm. Not always, but it is definitely possible. And one more interesting facet of Moore's law is that from 2004 onwards, we could still get the exponential improvement in performance at a lower rate. And that was coming from the early exploitation of parallelism. But in the beginning, it's easy to say, okay, I'm going to break one task in two parallel tasks. That's fine. I'm going to break two tasks to four tasks. That's fine. Once you have one million tasks and you have to organize them and you have to synchronize them, that's very hard, right? So that's why in the beginning, it was very easy to get benefit. And also, there was a lot of painful effort, I might say, from computer architects to optimize the processor, right? And they optimize the processor by exploring and highlighting parallelism. So every step of the pipeline is essentially parallel with the other steps of the pipeline. So even though you're executing one command, you have 30 commands in flight. So they build more optimized and deeper pipelines, more optimized processors, bigger cache memory, so accessing data and code is more efficient. And all these optimizations have actually helped to maintain this exponential increase in performance for the last 15 years. It's not clear that we can always keep doing that. So every year we need to bring new ideas about how to gain more performance, not by a better or faster hardware, but by a better design. And that's why our approach and our effort comes into play with the Moore's law, because we are trying to say, let's gain performance out of the fact that we cannot have a faster CPU, essentially, by taking this silicon and eventually using it closer to the data to make something smart over there. And our ultimate goal is not to have an FPGA between memory and CPU, rather is to actually put all this functionality in the memory controller. So Mm. in the future, we hope to have memory controllers that can essentially allow you to query specific columns from a row store laid out. So that's the dream. So thinking about this for a second, it makes a lot of sense, right? You can only make things so small. We've gotten down to two, one nanometer process. You know, you're not going to go to zero. The clock speed in the computer has gotten as fast as it's going to get. Parallelism, now we're putting more and more cores on there. All this makes sense. And you are starting to see exactly what you're talking about. You see CPUs that have tensor processing units on them. You see CPUs that have the new generation of the Apple chips have a machine learning set on the chip. And so you see that now where we're putting these specialized bits of technology in there, which when you think about it, software is just a different manifestation of the hardware. Hardware is just very very general purpose, and the software is what makes it special purpose. If you push it onto the silicon, it's just going to be faster because it runs right next to the CPU. So this makes complete sense, and I like the idea of an FPGA is the testing ground for new ideas. And this is what we can do in the next stages of classical computing, is continue to take ideas like this and program them with FPGA. And then once you prove them out, it makes sense to invest and put them on the processor because then what we can do is... We can have data systems that are designed for this kind of thing, and they matter. You know, having, I think some of the numbers were like 1.8x or 1.6x performance, even just 10% improvement in performance at the scale we're talking about. So much energy, so much computing power cost. I've done the math with an example. I don't have it in front of me, but you can easily make millions of dollars by Mm -hmm. 1% benefits if you have many instances. That's a crucial part. 
And you're making them, why? Because in the cloud, you don't pay for what you don't use. So that's mm-hmm. why it makes a lot of sense to actually tailor things in that way. Manos, thank you again for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me. I have been very happy to talk about our work on what we call relational memory. I didn't talk about the name. The name comes from the fact that it allows you to do any relational access, column store or roster, right? Also, I was happy to bring everybody up to speed with what we've been doing and essentially what motivated our work. Great. Thank you. Really, it's always a pleasure to talk and to have you on. So I want to thank you for that. And for our listeners, hopefully we've piqued your interest, maybe even demystified a little bit what data systems do under the covers. And hopefully this will lead you into some research of your own. I'm your host, Angelo Castrulis, and this has been Counting Sand. Before you go, please take a moment to follow us and to subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on LinkedIn, Angelo K1, or you can follow us on Twitter, Angelo Caster, or you can follow my company, Ballista Group. 